Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. And hello, everyone. I hope it's not as cold where you are as it is here. <laughs> oh, come on, Mom. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> We've actually had pretty mild pretty mild weather so far oh, yeah. for mid-December. Oh, yeah, we have, we have. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. Don't mean to complain. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, interestingly enough, this book came our way shortly after you had asked me why is the drug crisis so much worse than it used to be? What's changed? And mm-hmm. I did not know because I'm kind of living in a <laughs> living in a fairyland where I don't have to deal with these things. And, and I know, me too. And this book really explains it. So who I mean, who are we are, speaking yeah. with today, Mom? Well, today we're speaking with uh, a man who wrote a book about, and it is some book, I'll tell you. The book is The Least of Us, Two Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And it, it is Sam, if I get this right. Kenyonis. Ken, Ken right. Yonis. Ken, okay. It is a book. It is a book everybody should read, even though, even if they're not touched by the by the, the drug thing and, and we are blessed in our family that none of our kids or grandkids have done that but I mean gosh it's just unbelievable, it's unbelievable. and this this book is there's so many stories here of people and their their problems and why why it is and oh anyway so we better get started <laughs> well Sam <laughs> Sam Quinones is a journalist storyteller former LA Times reporter and author of four acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction this most recent book, The Least of Us, True Tales of American Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, was released in 2021, and it's a follow-up to his 2015 book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Sam. Well, thank you both very much for having me. Very nice to be with you. So what led you to focus on this um, epidemic? Well, it started really with... Um, I lived in Mexico for 10 years. I wrote my first two books, are actually narrative nonfiction about Mexico, and uh, came back to work for the LA Times. And then this drug war in Mexico just erupted, and I was kind of taken aback by that because I'd lived 10 years in Mexico. It was very peaceful, very pleasant time to be a journalist there, no, no real risks or dangers that I perceived. And it became very crazy. So I, uh, the paper put me on task of uh, working on stories about this drug war along with other reporters. And I began to write about heroin, which at the time was being imported in the United States in much larger, larger amounts than we'd ever seen before. And I couldn't understand that. And so that, that really got me into my first book on this topic, Dreamland, as you mentioned earlier. Um, that was really about the story of how a national move towards heavy prescribing of opioid prescription, opioid painkillers kind of created um, a lot of addiction among people nationwide. And that a lot of folks then switched to heroin because heroin is an opioid very much like oxycodone or these other drugs that were being prescribed by, by doctors or chemical cousins. And so you began to see the beginnings of all that. I, I got onto that story to write, uh, really about a village in Mexico where everybody trafficked heroin in the United States, very much like pizza, kind of a pizza delivery system for, for heroin. And that led me to this larger story. But then as, I, as that book came out in 2015, I began to do lots and lots of touring and, and speaking in, in public uh, about this all over the country. And I began to realize that as I was speaking in real time, the story itself was changing. And this was largely, this was not because of the pharmaceutical industry, which is really behind the first stage of all this. It was mostly because of changes that had taken place in the Mexican trafficking world uh, over the last several years. And that was fundamentally a shift away from plant-based drugs, marijuana and and heroin primarily, um, that you need to grow essentially to produce, and towards synthetic drugs, drugs that only involve chemicals. And primarily the two most important of these were fentanyl and methamphetamine. And that these drugs were now 
nationwide. And that was something we had never seen before. We had never seen one source being the trafficking world in Mexico. We never seen a single source provide nationally uh, uh, one illegal drug, let alone two. And here they were doing it two, two of them. And these drugs were the most potent and powerful and deadly in the case of fentanyl that we'd, we'd ever, ever seen. And it was all really because that these drugs made sense to traffickers and dealers. It, it, it does, this is not derived from demand. It derives from the benefits to suppliers. It's a supply-driven story. I thought this was very, very interesting. And, and I began to see, although it's much more even pronounced now, a year after the book's come out, than it was when even I was finishing up the book. But, but I was beginning to see real severe damage to the country in many, many ways uh, from these drugs. At the same time, though, I want to stress this because this was a very important part of the book. I also began to realize from writing my book, Dreamland, um, that, that a lot of this was rooted in our own destruction of community, our own isolation, our own uh, belief that we could kind of all go it alone. It was a, a, a comfortable idea to have, even though it wasn't true. Um, and, and, and I began to see that that was a very toxic idea and, 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 as I said, damaging. And so what I began to do at the same time, as I was writing about these extraordinarily de uh, devastating drugs coming out of Mexico, I also wanted to write about stories of people, Americans, in the smallest way possible, just doing what they could to repair and strengthen community, because in that, I believe, lay the solutions, plural, to what ails us. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that became even more important than the story about the synthetics. It became a book about hope. And that's why I use the word hope in the title. It became about how do we move beyond this? How do we deal with this? What are the bulwarks we can construct against these most toxic things? Um, well, it comes from small scale, small, uh, uh, you know, getting back to a kind of a neighborhood idea that we have lost and shredded and disposed of and, and, and didn't think was all that necessary in this country for far too long, it seems to me. And so it was writing those stories that, that really inspired me and excited me and, and, and that, that would kind of push me onward because those stories were, the, were where I saw uh, um, kind of the real America, the way I perceived it, the way I conceived it, conceived it at, at work. You know, and it's so easy not to see that elsewhere in the media and so on. But it, if you look hard enough and look in, 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 at the local level, you'll find it. You know, Sam, it's, it's interesting because just a few days ago I interviewed um, Michael J. Tagayas, who um, – was the author of The Finest Hour and a lot of other books about tragedies. And his latest, Extreme Survival, is lessons of people who have survived things that most, you know, most people couldn't survive, seven days on a raft in the middle of the ocean kind of thing. And one of his first lessons in that book that he was brought away was small steps. Do the tiniest thing that you can to make your situation better. Yes. And I, I believe that 100 percent and that that I was convinced of that during Dreamland and, and, and but it came late in, in my writing. And so I said, I, I, I want to when the second book came around, I, I said, I really want to move that that theme forward and make it a prominent thing. But, you know, I, get, I used to give um, writing workshops in East L.A. in Los Angeles at the library in East L.A. And um, that was what I told my writing pupils. You know, I, they would all come saying, I want to write a book about my life or my dad's life or somebody close up. And I would say, fine, put that in the back burner and let's work on one story, getting one small three to five page story in really good shape. And then to the next one, you know, to me, human beings, we work best when we are working in the smallest way possible and then gaining energy and encouragement from doing that one thing well and then moving on from there. And what you find, I think, and I think what this is not just common to the, the stuff that I wrote in, in The Least of Us, but what you find, I think, is that people um, begin to get, first of all, they get energy and encouragement, but then they also begin to see 
more solutions present themselves, the more that they are working in these small ways and maybe connecting up very often as happens with other people of a like mind. And, and too, too often we, we view these things as like, well, we have to haul, solve the whole system. Otherwise, what's the point? And I think, well, no, that's not what we need to do. We need to just work and, and try to solve one small thing and find other people who believe the same thing. And through that, you begin to move forward, move towards a real social change that does not involve lots of very nasty unintended consequences. If you look at the whole thing at once and, and it just seems overwhelming, it's like how could you possibly, how can we possibly make a difference? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. like – you know, one of my favorite books on writing was uh, Annie Lamott, Bird by Bird. Do, right. do you yeah. remember that one? I just bought that for my <laughs> I just bought that for my daughter for, for Christmas. I did. Yeah, so I, I, it was it was a very good good uh, book on on uh, approach to writing, which is don't try to write the whole damn thing, the whole ornithological universe, but write one bird at a time for a report for mm-hmm. his uh, the, the, the her brother's uh, school. And I thought that that was that that is also a way of moving uh, forward. And that's also, by the way, the way I write when I'm writing. I don't do a lot of reporting and then sit down and write. I'm writing little bits by and little bits at a time, chunks at a time every night when I'm on the road, say, doing a report uh, reporting in some town. Um, I'll come back from that day and I'll transcribe some tapes. And then I'll, I'll write down um, maybe uh, a page worth of what, what I heard or an anecdote here and fill that out. And, and the main reason I do that, well, there's two main reasons. One, one of the important reasons is that um, I want to get that down as quickly as possible so it's as fresh and I don't forget some of these details. Then I'll take it back and it generally generates more questions as I write. Um, as I write it out, I go, oh, no, and while I'm in town, I can go hit that person up again and ask a bunch of new questions that hadn't occurred to me the first time because you never can think of all the questions you're going to need uh, for writing. But the other thing is because I don't want to have to scale a 10,000-foot mountain, you know, all by myself. I want, I want to be able to already be about a, a well up the mountain. And what, what writing in these little chunks of, of, of prose at a time allow me to do is later on sit down and say, oh, right, yes, I have – three and a half pages written on this stuff already. So I'm not starting from scratch. I'm all the way, part of the way up that mountain. And it's, it's, it's part of just, you know, what, what allows me to feel like, okay, this is a doable um, uh, endeavor here rather than say, I'm starting with a blank screen. And that's, that's a very uh, uh, um, <laughs> daunting task. So the same with solving the fentanyl problem and writing. They have that similarity and many other things in life. I think so, and I think it's also the case when when dealing with with uh, issues at the, at, at at the more um, local level. I had a I had a a, um, a pastor I was talking with a pastor, and he was um, um, bemoaning the fact of very correctly that that the foster children agency in his county was just overwhelmed, and you frequently find this is just a devastating thing. And, and what do we do? How do we solve the foster children agency problem? And it occurred to me, and I don't know, I don't know his county. I'm not here to provide solutions to what that count, what ails that county, um, although it's a similar case in many counties. Um, but I said to him, well, why not as a church? Why don't you take a couple of kids and, and see if you can make a difference in their lives and maybe other churches or other church groups? Uh, within a church can take up this family and that family or these kids over here and, that, and make sure that they are uh, well provided for and well cared for instead of trying to solve the entire foster children agency problem, which is going to be very big uh, a deal. Why not just work on this small way uh, of making one life better and then seeing how that helps um, that those kids and maybe also, helps towards finding uh, solutions to maybe things that are just a tad bit larger than that, that I think trying to tackle the entire foster children agency and how to resolve it, how to make it better, how to, you know, it just feels to me like that's something that you're automatically going to fail at doing. And then everyone's going to sit around and go, well, there's no, there's no solution. Mm-hmm. Forget it. Oh, well, we tried. And couldn't go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Oh, it's the same with it's the same with drug trafficking. I mean, I wanted to ask you: Do you think that the the um, uh, COVID thing had anything to do with uh, isolating people and making this more difficult for people to to uh, to get help? Oh, sure. Oh, without without a doubt. And the the one of one of the many tragedies of COVID was that it happened. It came out. It came up just as the trafficking world in Mexico had covered the United States with these two drugs. And so people in recovery from drug addiction, all of a sudden, you know, one of the big things they always tell you in, 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 in drug treatment is do not isolate. Very dangerous thing to yeah. do when you're trying to recover from drug addictions. And all of a sudden everybody has to isolate and all the 12 step meetings go from being hands-on and in-person to Zoom, and that just doesn't really work as well. And then, of course, a lot of people lose their jobs because a lot of the jobs that were lost were jobs that recovering addicts after years outside of the labor force, they were, they were doing those jobs, working in restaurants, dishwash, or what have you, that kind of thing. So now all of a sudden maybe a lot of those folks are out of, out of work. Uh, those jobs mm-hmm. are plentiful to, to come by. And so what you begin to find is people having very stressful times. Every, everybody's in stress. Nobody around to, to help them through it or talk through it. And then at the same time, the, when they do end up relapsing, the drugs are not even cocaine and heroin anymore. It's, it's fentanyl, which is so deadly, and, um, and particularly when your, your tolerance is very low, and, and methamphetamine, which is driving people to, to mental illness very quickly all across the country in the in the, in the potency that's coming out in Mexico, out of Mexico these days. And so what you began to find was all these people just kind of, you know, going from this extraordinary pandemic, uh, unprecedented pandemic into another unprecedented situation, which is one, two drugs everywhere, pretty much in the, in the, in the, in the United States. And, and, and that would be the drug that you would most likely relapse on. And so people began dying and that's why you begin to see these, enormous leaps in um in overdose deaths um all, all across the all across the country it's really because i think of 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 that and just the spread of these these drugs that are so damaging to the to the human brain now do you think that it's well known enough now how dangerous how deadly these drugs are that maybe new people won't try them. I can understand that once you've tried it and are addicted, that it's very hard to stop. But it's like, why would anyone now, if or it, or yeah. is it not well enough known? I, I, I yeah. Would, yeah. No, I think it, it, it's becoming well enough known. Now, it's hard for me to say in certain parts of the country if it's still, you know, not. But I would say it's hard for me to imagine that there's a line of cocaine in a, anywhere in America now. That you can trust not to have fentanyl in it. Um, it's just a remarkable thing that how many people have died because they've used fentanyl. That I mean, of cocaine that a, a dealer has 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 put fentanyl in to boost it uh, its potency or to addict someone to fentanyl. So get transitioning a co- cocaine customer from being a uh, a, a regular an occasional customer of cocaine to being a daily relentlessly daily customer of, of fentanyl it's a big market move uh, some people say well it's being mixed um, unintentionally and, it, and I'd say that I thought I think that was probably true early on I don't think that's true right right now it's just too many too for too long you've seen uh, cocaine and methamphetamine with, with fentanyl in it and it's just all kind of one big mix now and I think that, that that's not it's not an unintentional thing mm. and it doesn't feel reasonable that it is but you would think that yes I think that by and large people are kind of aware but then you get certain people who you know are not or think that well they can they it won't happen to them it's actually doing the best job of anti-drug education it seems to me because what we've seen is that all those myths that 30, 50 years ago, whatever, um, were, were, were um, uh, told about, about drugs, that you could die from one hit of cocaine and, uh, and uh, heroin would kill you immediately and that kind of thing. Well, all of that's becoming true. Oh, brother. Now it's all true. All, the, all those myths of, say, the 1930s or 1960s and what have you, all those, dr- all those myths are now true. One line of cocaine will kill. It has killed people many a time. Wow. You know, it's that kind of stuff that I think is also 
becoming, you know, aw- people are becoming aware of it. And if they know it's not alarmist, they know it's not mythology. It's real stuff. Really, this is happening. And and so I, I'm I'm thinking pe- people by and large are, are moving away. But on the other hand, um, this is all about supply creating demand. You know, it's about supply is such, such prevalent that you end up using it somehow in whatever way you first use it. And then after a while, you're and, and not, not too long a time, you're, you're addicted to it. Of course, it. you wouldn't think it would be a good business move for people to kill off their customers. That's what I was yeah, And it's say. not. It's not. <laughs> on, the, on the other hand, on the other hand, if you can turn a, an occasional cocaine customer into a, um, a daily and 365, 24-7, you know, kind of uh, offensive customer, then you are then you're ahead of the game. And uh, I was just not long before uh, talking with you folks, I was on the phone with some uh, uh, drug counselors in southern Arizona, and I could tell you that, that they are seeing uh, what they're seeing down there where the pills are almost like pills of fentanyl or uh, counterfeit pills containing only fentanyl are about 80 cents a piece down there. And you've seen people using fentanyl literally all day long all day long, 50 to 100 pills a day, um, building tolerances that are staggering. You just can't imagine how, how, how high these, these, these tolerances to these pills are. And, and, and so now you, and, and that's what I mean. Those people not long ago were, were people who were not doing that. And a few years back, that was not the case in that area. And now you're just seeing huge amounts of fentanyl use. In, in that area, and they just have tolerances that, that will bear that. Oh. But it's very difficult to get them off of that. Wow. And, and scary mm-hmm. withdrawals, too, you know. So. You're listening to Writers' Voices with Monica and Carolina, and our guest today is Sam Kenyonis, who is the author of The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Um, talking about meth, you know, meth has been around quite a while when when my kids were teenagers it was an issue and that was over 20 years ago but that was meth that was made right here in Iowa and um yes what's different about the meth now well the first thing that's different about it is that all of that is production has shifted to Mexico uh we did a pretty good job in this country of controlling the chemicals that went into using it making it I should say mm-hmm. And um, and so eventually, by the late 90s, you saw a lot of that production shifting, moving south, and a lot of uh, and and now it's pretty and for a long time now it's been pretty much all out of Mexico. There's very little of those small-time meth cooks. They got outcompeted <laughs> essentially by the Mexican trafficking uh, world. And and what then also changed though was that the the method for making methamphetamine changed as well down at once it was down in Mexico. For a long time they made they used they made meth using chemical known as ephedrine and it's a decongestant. You find it in Sudafed pills and other decongestant pills, that kind of thing. Well, um, the Mexican government in two thousand eight put a regulation in place that really prevented of the importation of a lot of that ephedrine and deprived the Mexican trafficking world of their main precursor chemical and they had to shift to another way an older way way that had been used by biker gangs in california back in the 60s and 70s very messy very smelly uh complicated uh, known with a precursor known as phenol to propanone also known really for short as p2p and there is they found that, that while it was more difficult to make meth this way it had one it did have one benefit to the trafficking world, and that was that you could make P2P many, many different ways, all kinds of different ways of making it using uh, different assortments of legal, industrial, cheap Mm. chemicals. And so a government could not come down on it the way that Mexican government came down on the Fedron. So if you you made P2P one way, you could shift to another way, and then there's a third way, and then there's dozens of ways of making P2P they've been finding. And so um, they began to do that, and it, it helped that they, the trafficking world really by then was taking control of chemical importations from across the world. 
uh, through Mexico City Airport and through several ports on the western side of Mexico. And they began to get chemical importations that just were staggering, just unbelievable quantities of chemicals that would go into them making methamphetamine. And what you began to see then is beginning as they they conquered the learning curve of this new method of making methamphetamine that was new to them, you began to see this march across the country and, and do away with all that those small labs that you found in Iowa, but in Ohio and many, many parts of the country. Um, and you began to see this in 2012-13 in, in the West Coast, and by 17, it was through the Midwest, and by 19, 2019, it was up into, into um, uh, New England, and really covering the country and dropping the price. That's how much they were able to make. I mean, most places, you've seen this methamphetamine drop in price by something on the order of 80%, if not, if not more. But there was another story that my book that I found uh, that I was writing this and I reported in the least of us um, that I think the book kind of breaks. And that is that this methamphetamine coming across this country in such colossal amounts brought with it too a very rapid onset symptoms of mental illness. Meth-induced psychosis was dramatic and quick and led to paranoia, intense paranoia, delusions. Very quickly, people were not able to function. They were not functional addicts anymore. They were absolutely out of their minds and could not really live with other people. So very quickly, they were homeless. And so what you began to see along with this meth is the march of homelessness, mental illness, tent encampments. And I believe really the homelessness, mental illness, tent encampment situation in, in many parts of this country is really um, exacerbated, if not created, um, by, by this methamphetamine that is now, now everywhere. A lot of reasons why people end up homeless. But what you found is that once people and, – and, and, and meth addiction is certainly right near the top mm-hmm. nowadays. But what you also find is that no matter why people ended up homeless, the meth supplies were so vast and so scary – and, and, and so devastating to the human brain that you began to see people, once they were homeless for whatever reason, they were made almost intractably more so uh, and made more homeless in a sense and more difficult to getting people off the street because they were now using this drug that, that drove them mad and drove them out of, out of their minds. And so this was kind of like a new wrinkle that old forms, more diluted forms of meth uh, were not. Uh, responsible for so much you didn't see it so much it was bad for you never good for you your brain but it was never as stark Mm. and as and as damaging and as abrupt as as you we are seeing in many parts of the country and i i i believe that it's not really possible to tell the fully the homeless story in america today without this methamphetamine coming out of mexico in such staggering quantities i was that was the, the, the book was the first to report this since then. I would say in the last year, a lot of people have begun kind of poking into why this might be, what about this meth might be causing this. One idea is that there are these toxic chemicals that may be residue and so on. That's a possibility. Um, the other is that it's simply so potent, so undiluted, and the supplies are, are such that dealers on the street can't dilute it. If you dilute your meth, if you dilute your drug, you will very quickly not have a have a uh, have a customer, and, and you can get it so plentifully and so cheaply that there's no reason to dilute it. And so it's so much more potent and more potent than the human brain has ever had to deal with. And I think more and more people are coming to that conclusion. I don't think that there's any firm idea of how this has actually happened. Wow. Um, but I think that generally speaking, that that potency idea is where people are are coming to we'll see i'm not a mm-hmm. chemist i don't um i didn't never propose to know i just was reporting the effects of this stuff but that might be that may be the reason so how is it getting over the border because i know it's not people you know crossing over for work bringing drugs with no, them we have a, that's not we have a we have a we have a free trade agreement with mexico we have two thousand mile border we have numerous crossing points border border crossing points and we have millions of cars and trucks going back and forth every day yeah right there there that's how yes it's it's not there are many people who come with 
meth or fentanyl or whatever, some concoction of both uh, uh, strapped to their bodies. But you cannot explain the coverage of the entire country. So there's fentanyl up in Maine and there and in Skid Row in Los Angeles. You know, there's meth everywhere. There's fentanyl everywhere. You do not explain that. The thing is, I actually a pound to, to their <laughs> do. You, do you think that the that Mexico has the issue with addiction that we that the U.S. has? No, but it's it's growing. Oh. It, when I lived in, I lived in Mexico for ten years, and I don't remember much heavy uh, hard drug addiction in Mexico at all. Wow. Not not cocaine. That came late. That did come. Um, certainly not heroin. Meth was you know. But now you're seeing it. What you are seeing is is that that we let me explain it this way. The reason we're seeing so much of this now is because these groups we call them cartels, but in a strictly economic sense, they're not really cartels. A cartel is a group of producers come together to restrict production to force price up. And if you remember, OPEC in the '70s did just right. that. OPEC did that with with oil, and and our and the, the the result was much higher gas prices and so on. Um, the opposite has happened down in Mexico, and the reasons for that is that these are not they're called cartels, but in 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 some sense they're not precisely economic version of a cartel. They are more like drug alliances, fiefdoms, and there's many reasons why you would want. There's a lot of incentives to to get people to make more drugs. Because if you control a fiefdom, one way you, you make money is you sell permission to make a drug in your fiefdom, in your, your area. They call them plazas down in Mexico, in your little region. And you make more money the more people make drugs. They buy permission from you. That's how you control the area. And then also you control it by – you make money by selling selling chemicals to those folks. Well, if those are the incentives, it's all about more production and mm. more production. And there's now just almost like a, what would you call it, the synthetic drug rush <laughs> down in Mexico, down in that part of Mexico, certainly, where more and more and more people are making this. More and more people know how to make the knowledge base is very widespread. And so that is why you get this. You also, as I said, there are so many ways of getting it across, but they mostly involve trucks. Right. To some degree, cars. It's not about people carrying a pound over at a time because you, it, that does happen. There's no doubt that that happens. It's just that it's that you don't get to the kind of supplies we're seeing now with people strapping a pound to their mids, midriff and, and walking across the border. That's just that's just not where it's going on. This is this is a truck, uh, a legal and, a legal truck. You know, a truck crossing legally. Yes, yes. Right. coming through a legal yeah. crossing into. From Juarez into El Paso, from Tijuana into San Diego, from Nogales, Arizona, Sonora into Nogales, Arizona. You know those those crossings, and just they have. We just don't have the 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 staffing or the manpower. Nor do we really want to uh, to search a whole lot more trucks because the truth is it would bring our economy. My my, I've heard people, economists who know more than I do, say. If we if we if we search 25 percent of the trucks and, and cars coming over uh, the way we need to to find drugs, we would bring both economies to a standstill because we're so integrated right? economically. Yeah, so much of what we do in the United States depends on products in Mexico, yeah. food, but also you know stuff that goes into factories and all that kind of stuff. And so, well, I'm I'm in the it, process. My company is setting up a factory in Mexico, north of Mexico City. We're doing metal stamping and electroplating, and um, we uh -huh. just did our first Very uh, yeah that. our first shipment across um, the border, a test shipment pallet coming up here to Iowa, and it did get. It, it did get inspected. It did get opened. It did kind of ruin it for us, to be honest, because then the boxes right. weren't, you know, we were trying to test whether the boxes and the pallet shape and stuff were would hold up. Well, well, if the boxes have all been opened and not reclosed, then um, you're not going to get the, the we're not going to know. The drug, yeah. the drug problem that we face is is a supply problem. It's also a governmental Problem. And, and the, the, the problem really resides in, uh, I would say, mainly with, with the government of Mexico when it comes down to the synthetic production of, of drugs. 
and that there is almost no attempt to deal with um, the chemicals coming in and tracking the chemicals coming into Mexico and where they're actually headed and why there are so many chemical brokers in the city of Culiacán, Sinaloa, from China. Mm. You know, Culiacán, Sinaloa is, a, is, is like Bakersfield or maybe, um, I don't know, in, 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 uh, in, in Iowa what the major kind of agricultural hubs are, but there's, there's no reason to have chemical brokers, hundreds of chemical brokers in the city of Culiacán because there's no industry uh-huh. in Culiacán that would use, except for methamphetamine, wow. you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and so there's no attempt to do this. I would say uh, uh, from our end, we have done nothing to control the, the sale and, and flow of guns south into Mexico. And it's clearly a, 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 a catastrophic uh, thing for us and I would say and for Mexico, of course, because those guns, particularly assault weapons, um, which we, we, we allowed to let the, the ban on lapse back in 2004, and the next year, the, the big the, the cartel wars really heated up, and they've heated up ever since. They've gotten savage, as you've read, probably uh, ever 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 since. But the weapon of choice down there is uh, assault weapons, and that's uh, one place uh, one of place of a few. But I would say a major source of all that is is the United States, and these things are bought here and then trickled down into Mexico, and usually in smallish numbers. No. Hundreds, hundreds, or hundreds of, of, of weapons at a, at, a, at a time in a truck that would be too easy to stop. It's more like three, five, a mm. dozen plus many boxes of ammo and all that kind of stuff. So we both have our issues that have not been addressed. And uh, but I would say I have to say it seems to me that Mexico has the more severe problem. Mm. Frankly, these are and, and, and these are very. Um, uh, uh, devastating things, and the, the, those chemicals. A lot of the, the byproducts are getting into the water. They're getting into the land. I mean, it's it's poisoning the country as much as those drugs are poisoning the United oh, States. Wow. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Sam Quinones, author of *The Least of Us: True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth*. Well, my question is. What is happening in Europe and the rest of the world? Is this just here, or is it happening worldwide? No, I'd say largely here. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because we have one of the largest economies in the, in the world, and we have extraordinarily sophisticated drug trafficking world down in Mexico, deep-seated embedded corruption down in Mexico with a lot of people getting wealthy on that or at least seeing their interests involved in that. That, that doesn't mean, of course, that, that drugs aren't a problem worldwide, and of course that they are. Um, but you don't see the intensity and, and the remarkable supplies. Uh, a few countries in Europe have had issues with, um, with um, uh, fentanyl, for example. Uh, um, uh, Sweden Estonia for a bit in, in the mid-2000s. Um, I'm not sure if I even know where some of that stuff was coming from. Uh, I would say that a lot of traffickers worldwide now pretty much see that it's kind of a, a ridiculous idea to grow poppies. If you can make fentanyl, why would you grow opium poppies, you know, if you want to traffic it illegally? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that yeah. in some parts of the world, like in, in Southeast Asia, um, you are seeing methamphetamine, a real, a real issue. Um, but it's hard to find a country where so where it's so intensely felt and so concentrated, I would say, as we have uh, here in the United States. The other question is why, if if you know that fentanyl is so dangerous, why would you take it if you think you might die from it? I don't that's understand. If you, that. if that's uh, assuming you know that you you're taking it, and a lot of people have taken it without knowing. I say that that first happened with heroin, that was used to boost heroin. And then it very quickly was put into cocaine, used to boost cocaine. And that's one reason why the African-American community got involved in, in the opioid problem. When I was writing Dreamland, I wrote a, a problem that was nationwide, but it was largely confined to white people. Uh, black people and Latinos almost didn't have anything to do with the opioid epidemic, as we saw with the pain pills to heroin. But... What ended up happening was um, the dealers in the African-American community began to understand that once fentanyl was on the scene, that they could make a huge amount of money. It was very, very cheap, and they could boost their, their cocaine, the potency of their cocaine, and perhaps also get a, a person who, who was addicted to fentanyl now and have a much more regular 
customer, but that's when you also began to see uh, black people across the country dying of what, in fact, was an opioid uh, fentanyl in, the, in this case. And, that, and I, in, the, in the least of us, there's a story. I wrote the story of Mikey Tanner in Akron, Ohio, mm-hmm. who was the first black man in Akron, Ohio, to die using what he thought was cocaine, but actually in, 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 in containing fentanyl. And it really kind of was the uh, – you began to see a shift. I began in Ohio, I would say, and, and certain other parts, but Ohio was pretty. Ohio was pretty pronounced, and then it just kind of shifted. Now it's pretty much nation, nationwide. So a lot of people are using this stuff without knowing, but then they get addicted, and then then they do know, and then after that they are they are asking for fentanyl because nothing will solve the withdrawals, calm the withdrawals once you're addicted to fentanyl. Heroin won't do oh, it. We're, we're almost where there's a place where heroin really is not in many parts of the country anymore because fentanyl's out competed it, you know? So this is kind of where we, <sighs> where we stand. But, and now you're seeing these counterfeit pills that are coming up from Mexico and looking very much like a Percocet or a Xanax bar or an oxycodone generic 30 milligram pill containing only fentanyl. And during COVID, a, a lot of, dealers went to Snapchat and social media apps because so many people were in their houses. The way they connected with the world is through their phones, particularly kids. You began to see lots of kids buying these pills because they were depressed, they couldn't sleep, whatever the reason was, they thought they were buying a legitimate pill, a Xanax uh-huh. or what have you, and they were they were dying. And Snapchat was amazing, has gotten in a lot of uh, criticism for not doing more to stop that I went to a, a protest, in fact, in front of Snapchat headquarters in Santa Monica by 60 or so families, all with posters of kids who had died during COVID year, mm. saying Snapchat is complicit in my son or daughter's uh, murder oh, because God. they allowed people to sell anonymously. So Snapchat and TikTok and Instagram, to some degree as well, have become kind of, and some other places that uh, uh, social media apps or, or, or platforms that I haven't even heard of um, become the new street corner in a sense, you might say. Wow. Um, uh-huh. so. well, but why? It's a whole different world. People don't know. People, I, I would say many times the first use is because you don't know. The first few uses may be because you don't know. But I've also seen people who were, you know, kind of content using, using heroin, I guess, and then all of a sudden, they're, they're, it, it shifts. I talked to an addict in, the, in Maine who said, you know, I was using heroin for many, many years. And, um, and then the supply switched to fentanyl, and I was, I was transitioned mm-hmm. to fentanyl. I didn't want to use fentanyl. I don't want to, nobody wants to use fentanyl instead of heroin. It's much worse drug. It doesn't feel as good and everything. But you're addicted and you're, you're slaved. Wow. So, Sam, let's talk oh, a little God. bit about, about the structure of the book because you've got – it's in five parts, yeah. and each chapter you've got sure. like a number of threads, um, a number of storylines yes. going through. How many are there in total? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're going to have to count. Well, I mean, there, at at there, least ten. Um, uh, math and fentanyl, those are two. Neuroscience. <laughs> Um, you, then I, I focus on certain geographic areas because I want to tell their stories. Again, those are stories that I, I want to bring out people who are, who are doing small, small, daily, relentless kind of stuff to bring out, to, to help, you know, I guess, you Make know, things better. strengthen community. And yeah. those. So you have Kenton County, Kentucky, and the jail experiment there. You have Hardin County, mm-hmm. Ohio, and the, the, the mm-hmm. sheriff there who, who uh, employed a recovering addict as a janitor. And um, you have uh, Muncie, Indiana, and Bird, the guy who kind of becomes a, a community center in, unto himself and, and, and unbeknownst to city leaders, uh, uh, resurrects the community center that the city had closed for lack of a budget, <laughs> and he just opens it. And he, he kept, kept it open because he kept the key, and the city leaders didn't really even know, and he kind of did that for several years. And... Um, and then you get uh, a story of Clarksburg, uh, West Virginia, and and Lou Tensio, who uh, a doctor who who grew addicted to his. It was a, a major prescriber of these pills, believing it was helping people. A lot of people got addicted because of that. He got addicted, lost his license, ended up 
um, and a, a remarkable story, kind of embracing his own recovery um, in, uh, in, in, in public and became the local pizza deliverer, delivering to his former patients pizza, uh, and now is a uh, director of the homeless clinic, uh, a shelter in that, in that town. It's also the story of how, you know, this meth, P2P meth came to, came to uh, uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, which had no homeless people, and suddenly within a year had dozens, hundreds perhaps, mm. of homeless people uh, all out of their minds, stripping the houses clean and that kind of thing. And then you have the, the great story. Of, I, I say it great because I wrote it, but not because of that. I, mean, I, I wrote it, but I don't say it because <laughs> of that. I say it because the story is so powerful uh, and, you know, a profound story of Angie Odom and the girls. Uh, she tried to help Starla Haas, uh, who ended up um, lost for many years and ended up um, uh, overdosing and being saved with essentially a vegetable and uh but pregnant and 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 took and was cared for and still the the baby was about to, could be could be delivered and then it was the story of how angie odom it's a long story and i don't want to get into all the i don't want to live, I, I give anything away but i would say that that it's a story of, of how one woman put put the practice of christianity and, and the, the doctrine of christianity into absolutely um, mm-hmm. uh, daily, daily practice, and it's also kind of was part of why I call the book the least of us, because the idea was I, I'm not a Christian, but as I, as I um, wrote this book, I began to look for a, a guide, like what am I trying to say overall, and not the details. What is the overall? And the idea was that we're only as strong as the most vulnerable, only as strong as the least of us. And I, re- I got this mm-hmm. from reading, you know, the Gospels and, and reading Matthew and Jesus saying to his disciples, that, that what you do, the least of these, my, uh, least of these, my brother, you do for, to me and, to and me. for me. Yeah. Uh, to me, right. And um, that was a powerful, powerful thing to read as I was writing this book because it made me feel like, yes, that is what we need to keep in mind. This is all telling us, remember what Jesus said? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember, remember that? You know, the, all of this, yeah. this harrowing stuff that I've just been talking about with you all is, tell, is is a way of saying, look, this is all a way of saying, remember what Jesus was try, was trying to tell his disciples in Matthew. Mm. And, um, and and to me, that was a, a powerful thing to read, and it became kind of a, a guide. And then Angie's story was nothing if not that, a, and a, a personal story, a trek through that very idea of how to care for the most vulnerable, the, uh, uh, a woman who is rendered a vegetable, basically unable to walk or see or sleep or, or, or eat or stand um, uh, or talk and, uh, and, and then care for her uh, in the years that she had left and also then uh, adopt her baby. Um, and all of that was just, it was a profound thing to write and, and it made me understand too just how, how privileged and honored I was to be able to write that kind of story. Because it, I was, in the end, as I said earlier, I was not writing a horror story. I was not trying to write a horror story. That's what the drug story became. What I really set out to write was a story of hope and, mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. and kind of the lessons that these, these, idea, the, these problems were trying to instruct us in. You know what I mean? And, and so to me, it felt like, I was writing a hopeful book. Now, a lot of people have taken focus on the other side, which is entirely understandable because there is this very sinister part to this story. It's just that through it all, there are, there are these ways of seeing this as a way forward, in fact, uh, and getting, getting back to that community that we all evolved as human beings to need. And we have decided in this country we don't need that so much. And we can do a lot to destroy that and shred that. And we don't really need to worry about that so much. And that's not true. That's just not true. And I think that right. the opioid epidemic is showing us that, that this is what you get if you decide that that's, that you can, you can shred that, that, that essential stuff. Um, and, 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 and then there's stories like Angie's story, just so powerful. My wife started crying during the, you know, I got a, a call from a sheriff in South Carolina, crusty old guy who said, you know, every, he's listening to the book on audible and he and I have been in contact for several years. 
occasionally. And he says, I was listening to this, and every morning he says, I wake up in the morning, I walk at five in the morning, I get my exercise by walking around this enormous parking lot, and usually I'm listening to books while I do it, and it's before my day starts, you know. And he says, I was listening to your story, um, uh, your book, and I came to the end, it was about 5.30 in the morning, I'm all alone out there on this parking lot, and I just break down and start crying as I'm walking listening to the ending of the Starla uh, and Angie and, and their daughter and, and the daughter Bella story and not of sadness, but of kind of like profound poignancy. And it was this sheriff, Southern sheriff, which I'm <laughs> taking to be a guy who does not cry easily in the middle of the, you know, the early morning hours out there in this parking lot, just crying happiness and poignant the poignancy of the story and I, I again i bring it up i wrote the, wrote this thing but at the time it felt like not my story at mm. all it felt like it was a story i was kind of guided to write it was such a powerful story of hope and and of, of practicing the daily practice of the of the christian mm. uh, doctrine and gospel um that just was profound to me it made so, me cry too. So, anyway. <laughs> but oh, I don't good. cry. I'm. Yeah. Not, that's not that hard to do for me. But, but still, <laughs> it's not that hard to make my wife cry about this stuff either. But the southern shit. Yes. Yeah. Now yeah. different. Now you <laughs> also have a have a. So I think it's mission accomplished with that story. And and I was just talking with Angie about a week ago, and I was telling her the story of this southern sheriff too. You know, she and I keep in pretty close touch. We talk to each other every month or so, or something like that. And she's doing very very well. And as is as is Bella, the, the girl who was born mm. and now adopted by by Angie, she's going to be in the uh, the Christmas play at her church. Aww. She's gotten very tall. And she's just it's a it's a wonderful story, um, of that grows from very sinister roots. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. but beautiful and mm-hmm. profound and, <laughs> and and inspiring. And my well, view, speaking of, uh, I couldn't believe I stumbled. Speaking on of it. sinister, you also write a thread about the Sacklers, the Sackler family. <laughs> yes, and and the sad thing about them, I came to view them as almost a, a addicts themselves, addicted to, to money. Um, and, and money, yeah. exactly right. And and it just shows you everybody can be an addict to yeah. something. We're all many of us are. I was addicted to nicotine for, I don't know, thirteen years, something like that. Um, and 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 the, the story there was that they 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 could not make enough money. They just nothing about how much money they make. There was one year they were Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin, which they own. They own Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin, which was a major factor in the opioid epidemic crisis. Um, they, they they would that company would funnel the family, the Sackler family, money every year in, the, in hundreds of millions of dollars every single year. And the the the, the height of all that was 2010, I believe it was. $889 million, this company funneled almost all of it from the sale of OxyContin, funneled to oh the Sackler family, several of them on the board, and then there were other heirs who also got some of this money. But what was amazing was in the, in the, in the, in the documents that were later subpoenaed by different attorneys general and made public, it was, they were complaining. They were complaining. Now, you know, it was that year where they got $889 million and they were still complaining that they, they hadn't hit sales targets. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it, just, it, made, it made me feel like these guys are simply addicted to their yeah. the money. They cannot get enough well, of it. Another... And anything that happens will make them upset <laughs> if it doesn't mean more, more revenue. Another um, addiction that you talk about is sugar. Yes. Yeah. And, and this was... I, what I wanted to do at the very tail end of Dreamland, just as I was about to finish it, I thought to myself, man, I really need to do something on the uh, on the neuroscience of addiction. It was too late. I didn't have space. I didn't have time. So I didn't do it in Dreamland. But I wanted to do that for the least of us because I wanted to tell the story of how we are surrounded. And in our lifetime, we have seen this emerge. We are surrounded by an enormous toxic soup of addictive stuff that's legal. And that was not allowed to be marketed in the same way that it is now. Now you're seeing the latest uh, of many examples, the latest is, are those gambling apps that you see on every sporting event TV on TV. 
um, you know, football, baseball, basketball, all these sports stars, marketing, this gambling, these gambling apps, gambling is intensely addictive, as we all know, legal, as we all know. But, but I wanted to write about what happens to our brains. What about our brains leads to addiction? And so the idea was to write about the brain chemistry. And I spoke with a number of brain uh, of neuroscientists, marvelous, wonderful uh, a brilliant, brilliant uh, people who have been studying this. So much is known about it. And sugar is one of those things like gambling, like pornography, like video games, like social media, of course. You can go on and on about that. And like dope and like illegal drugs that is highly uh, addictive. But I wanted to write that because I wanted to tell us, say that we are all, the least of us lie within us all. Mm. Right? We can all be that addict eating from the trash. We all have the brain chemistry to be plucked mm-hmm. and manipulated and, and diverted and hijacked the same way Coke and co- cocaine and, and heroin and meth and fentanyl do. Well, it's, it's, it's to perhaps somewhat lesser degree, but nevertheless, same way, um, sugar, uh, chicken nuggets, which is fat and salt, <laughs> you know, 60% fat and salt, basically, um, pornography, gambling, all of that stuff. It's one big, long continuum of addictive stuff a lot of it legal and therefore able to be marketed in the most scandalous ways in my opinion and then all far on the outskirts that's when you get to this the mexican drug cartel world wow. you know but that takes a long time to get there <laughs> out there is yeah these guys are too they're doing wow. this too but well you know, sam we are out of time you know, this has been an amazing it. conversation uh-huh. we never did get around to having you read from your book so <laughs> oh that's okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, well, he did right. sort of. Until it's People can of, read, yeah. read uh, from they it can read from it all they want, um, and they can find it. They can find it on on any place they buy books. Can get uh, uh, it's in paperback, hardback, audiobook, ebook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's on Amazon, but it's also on many other independent bookstores. Go to your independent bookstore and get and it. And the there. thing that's so great um, about this I'm, book and about your writing, Sam, yeah. is that even when you're writing about detailed things it's all in the you know kind of scientific things it's all in the form of story which makes it a lot more um yes. palatable and, and to me that's <laughs> this essential way of doing journalism and, and writing i want people to be um gripped yes and okay. and 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 to be draw, drawn into the story and pulled along on the story and made uh and and and, and uh and and consumed by the story and i've found that to be the case I've, Actually, people say, definitely. oh, yeah, man, people, man I, I binge read your book, or <laughs> it took me only a couple of days to read your book, that kind of thing. That is what I'm always, that's my <laughs> ah, That's what you're addicted to. People tell me, I binge read your book, I'm, I'm like, fantastic. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. Caroline, do you have <laughs> a closing quote for us? Yeah, it, it actually, it's from, it's from him. In a time when drug trafficking uh Drone traffickers act like corporations, and corporations like traffickers. Our best defense, our only defense, lies in bolstering community. We are only as strong as our most vulnerable. Amen. And I think that's... <laughs> can I say one, thank you very much. And can I say one sure. last thing? I should have said this earlier. Um, I have deep roots in Iowa. Um, my grandfather uh, and grandmother were prominent in Des Moines. My grandfather uh, owned Brown Engineering Company, which at the time was the third largest engineering company in Iowa and built a lot of the rural electric grids in the 30s, 40s, 50s. He was in Patton's Army. And um, Brown Engineering, I look it up and it's still, our family no longer owns it. That was sold long long ago, but it's still in Des Moines. And my grandmother was a gadfly uh, a civil, civic gadfly, very well-known, Paula Brown, and she um, was also extraordinarily uh, important in saving Gray's Lake near, Des Mo- near downtown Des Moines from uh, development of McDonald's and all that kind of stuff. We didn't, we couldn't go to McDonald's. My mother <laughs> would not allow us to go to McDonald's till I was 12 <laughs> because my grandmother hated, we fought mightily against those golden arches. This was back in the 60s, right? But if you go to Gray's Lake, at one part of Gray's Lake, well, I've been to, and you, it, that you look for, look ahead and you'll see all of downtown past the lake, and you'll you'll see a big a, a whole display that tells the whole history of Gray's Lake, 
Paula Brown's name was mentioned many a time in that in that in that thing. So um, I always love Iowa. I revisited many a time when I was a kid, uh, driving cross country to Des Moines, went to the Iowa State Fair, et cetera, et cetera. So Iowa is a uh, a big part of my oh, growth. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much. See you all next week on Writers Voices. Bye everybody.